Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 2.32, Season in Review, Part 2. Before we get going for today, I want to go back and make a quick correction from last week. During last week's episode, I had been talking about that period during and immediately after the English Civil Wars. So specifically, we are talking about the 1640s, 1650s, and into the early 1660s. I had mentioned that Charles I had been executed, which led to the protectorate under Charles Cromwell, and then eventually the restoration under Charles II. The problem is that there was no Charles Cromwell. There was Oliver Cromwell, not Charles Cromwell. And I knew that, and I just got a little bit taken in with St. Charles over and over, so sorry about that. Here we are today, though, with 32 episodes behind us, and we are ready to wrap up season two of the show. Last time, we spent our episode looking at the upheavals that we have seen throughout the colonies over the past few decades. If the theme of the first season was those early years and a movement towards stability throughout the future United States, season two was about the growing pains of those same colonies. This week, we are going to spend our time looking at a few of the other trends from the previous season as well as trying to figure out what this entire thing has meant so far, and what that will mean moving forward. Among the biggest themes from the first two seasons of this show so far is looking at the wide range of people that have come over to the North American colonies by this point. Focusing specifically on those from England, we see a few different groups really emerge in the colonies. Nowhere is this more felt than in the area of religion. Down in the South, in Virginia and the Carolinas, we see a population that is largely made up of Anglicans. Bacon's Rebellion was a complicated thing, and while we are going to see some similarities in the root causes between the events in Virginia and up in New England, it is important to realize that religion really is not a big motivator in Virginia. In New England, however, the entire universe revolves around the religious question. This is, of course, nothing new we are still talking about a colony that was largely born out of the mass period of migration of the 1630s, during the era of William Laud and Charles I. The Puritans in New England are going to remain an extraordinarily powerful force, right up through the collapse of the Dominion government in 1689. It was that Puritan hegemony in Massachusetts, for example, that held everything together so tightly. It was this tight-knit government that became so troubling to the moderates in New England. Back during our first season, we had discussed the path to government in Massachusetts and how that was directly through the Puritan church. Well, less bluntly stated, the same is also true in Connecticut. The path to membership in the church was tightly controlled, which meant that ultimately, those in control of the church could ensure that those entering into it we're going to get with the program and not deviate from the established norms. Therefore, those running the government would have essentially been closely vetted by the church. The failures, however, of this entire system was the fact that the Puritans kept everything so sealed off. A general stubbornness by the Massachusetts Puritans prevailed over and over again, defeating, pragmatically speaking, what would have been the more logical moves. In 1664, we see a slow response to give in to the four relatively reasonable demands of Charles II. This, combined with the overly harsh treatment of the Boston martyrs, caused enough concern for the newly restored king 
that he sent four commissioners to Massachusetts to enforce those demands. And to be clear, these demands were not really big asks for Charles II. These are things that you would just expect the colony to get on board with. Specifically, what the king was asking in this case was that the Massachusetts colonists would prosecute the regicides from the era of Charles I, take an oath of allegiance to the king, support Anglicanism, and extend the vote to all the freemen. And really, Charles II was not even equally concerned about all four of these demands. He had some wiggle room. Charles II had gone so far as to tell the commissioners that they could bend, especially when it came to the question of religious matters and the enforcement of taxes, as long as they secured the loyalty of the colonists throughout New England. This was especially important for Charles II as war with Holland was looking increasingly likely and New England support was going to be central to that. Despite the relative leniency, however, once the commissioners arrived, they were all but completely rebuffed by the Puritans. Yet, despite the fact that the Massachusetts colonists just blew off the king's request and his commissioners, we see what is going to become a bit of a common theme throughout the early history of Massachusetts. Specifically, Charles II became distracted by other events and did not have the time to deal with Massachusetts. We see this over and over again throughout really the first two seasons. Back in season one, we had discussed how Charles I was never happy with the way things were going in Massachusetts. However, he was busy trying to win the English Civil Wars and then probably not to lose his head. He did not have any time to worry about a region whose population was still fairly small and uninfluential. During the 1664 episode, we see that a war with Holland does take precedence. Was the king pleased to hear that Massachusetts had basically refused what he viewed as lenient terms? Of course not. However, the reality is, is that the king is a busy guy, and he had more pressing issues that required his attention. This pattern is going to repeat itself over and over again. We see it during the 1670s in the lead-up to King Philip's War. Again, the crown was interested in taking action against Massachusetts and the rest of New England, However, they would hold off because the war broke out. Following the war, the Crown was concerned about the fact that the New England colonists had rebuffed help from the Crown during that war. Chiefly when they informed their future best friend, Edmund Andros, at the end of a musket, that his help was not needed. When the king decided to act this time and there was an attempt to follow up on this, the king got distracted by the Popish plot and the exclusion crisis and again had little time to worry about events over in New England. While all of New England had always been particularly independent, the ringleader of all this is clearly Massachusetts. This goes all the way back to the earliest days of the colony. Recall that one of the biggest developments in the founding of the Massachusetts Bay Colony was the fact that the colonial headquarters would not be located in London, but rather would be based out of Massachusetts itself. Practically, this means that from its very birth, the Bay Colony had little in the way of oversight from London. It would likewise be tempting to say that the colony had an incredible string of luck going right up until the revocation of the Charter and the implementation of the Dominion government in 1686. However, suggesting that luck was the sole reason why Massachusetts was able to go on for so long flying just below the radar of the king is to conflate the importance of the colony. Massachusetts, and indeed all of New England, were relatively little concerns to the crown. 
Massachusetts was far away and had a small enough population that it posed no real threats for the king. Domestic affairs occurring right in his backyard always were going to be of paramount importance over a wayward colony on the other side of the Atlantic. This would remain the case until the middle part of the 1680s. So what changed at that point? The change came from the fact that Charles II and the monarchy's authority had been so thoroughly threatened by Parliament and the Whigs. This put a lot of pressure on Charles II to reassert royal prerogative. Suddenly, the minor irritation that the New England colonies had long presented became a far bigger threat for the king and for the future of the monarchy altogether. Massachusetts, likewise, was becoming increasingly divided into proto-political parties of their own, specifically the Puritan faction and the moderates who were made up of everybody else. In England, it was easy to redraw the Puritans as being connected to the Whigs, the party that was in favor of exclusion. And whether or not this was true, it was enough to cause serious concern for Charles II who was desperately retrying to assert royal prerogative. Of course, the Puritans were not the only group in England that was seeking a degree of religious refuge during this time. The second half of the 17th century would also see a sharp rise in the number of Quakers coming into the colonies. The first time that we see Quakers show up was in Massachusetts during the 1650s. To say that they got a cold reception there is something of an understatement. As we talked about in our first episode this season, you would end up ultimately with the four members of that Quaker community being executed in Boston and becoming known as the Boston Martyrs. Following these events, the Quaker population would quickly resettle to that place where all religious outcasts go in New England, Rhode Island. The Quakers would return in a far more pronounced way when William Penn founded Pennsylvania. His frame of government would quickly become the basis of one of the most liberal charters in North America, even if Penn was required to trim it down from his original ambitions. The Quakers, importantly, were not aligned with the Puritans and, in fact, never forgot the persecutions in Boston. What we have, therefore, is an extremely religiously diverse landscape throughout the colonies as a whole. The colonies were Christian in nature. However, that is basically where any similarities stopped. There were significant regional differences throughout the entire system that proved to be a defining element of the colonial experience. These differences do a lot to help explain how the colonies are organized. The Puritans are placed squarely in New England. Virginia is mostly Anglicans, with Quakers filling out the middle colonies in Pennsylvania. Now, I will isolate two specific areas that are a little bit different. First, Maryland is its own special situation, which is something that I'm going to just pause on for now because we're going to have an episode coming up next season about that, right towards the beginning of the season, actually. New York would likewise remain a hodgepodge of beliefs, which makes sense considering that there remained a large Dutch influence in the colony even after the 1665 capture by the English. And of course, I'd be remiss if we did not mention Rhode Island, which would long remain where all of the outcasts would congregate up in New England. If religion helped to create regionalism throughout the North American colonies, another question emerges of what, if anything, was the same between the colonies. One of the most obvious things that we see emerge following the tumult of the later half of the 17th century is a rift formed between England and the North American colonies. 
Well, reaction was far from universal throughout the colonies. There is a palpable feeling throughout the entire area of people questioning their role inside the greater English empire. This would manifest itself differently, however, in both the South and the North. In Virginia, the end of Bacon's Rebellion would usher in a complete reorganization of colonial life within the colony. The rebellion in the first place had really been a fight between the large landholding elites and the smaller, largely tenant farmers. The end of the rebellion, however, would see a complete change in this dynamic. Well, differences still certainly existed between the groups, there was a common dislike of the occupying English presence in Virginia. Nobody enjoyed living under the occupation. This is not unlike what we see up in Boston between the Puritan faction and the moderates in the run-up to the Boston Rebellion. These were two groups that had forever stood in strong opposition to each other who were suddenly forced into an oftentimes uneasy alliance based on a common threat. In Virginia, that common problem was the English occupation, whereas up in Boston and throughout the rest of New England, that threat was the Dominion of New England. In addition, however, consider that the events in Virginia had really forced the king to question the role of royal authority in the colonies. Yes, obviously there is going to be a concern over a population rising up and overthrowing a royal governor. However, beyond that, Charles II was concerned about the level of autonomy that William Berkeley himself had managed to gather. Either way, it was certainly worrisome for the king to notice that his North American colonies were becoming disturbingly independent at all levels. Well, certainly, royal prerogative is a major concern for Charles II. The king is also facing the very real consequences of the rebellions, both in Virginia and the war in New England, and that came in the form of economic losses. With everybody busy fighting, crop yields were far lower than expected. The king needed to rework the government, and while on the surface in Virginia at least this was successful, it had the unintended consequence of pushing those common farmers into alignment with the large landholders. Both large and small planters alike were deeply concerned with the overproduction of tobacco. This would ultimately lead to the tobacco riots in 1682 that saw the two rival sides coming together to burn huge amounts of their crops. The point was far more pragmatic than some symbolic showing of solidarity. Colonists felt that production far outstripped demand and they needed to balance the scales. This was not aided by the fact that royal authorities in the colony did little to endear themselves to the local populace as they were the ones who were pushing that overproduction. The biggest takeaway from the rebellion, however, is that it really got the Virginia population to start thinking about their place in the greater English empire. A lot had changed, and Bacon's Rebellion did much to bring that into focus. Those first colonists coming over back in 1607 did so with their eyes set on Cortez-style riches. And obviously, this is going to fall well short. By the time we reach Bacon's Rebellion, however, things are changing people are remaining in Virginia now for their entire lives. No longer a get-rich-quick scheme, people were spending their whole lives from birth to death in Virginia. This was their home. It was no longer merely an outcropping. People lived here, and they expected to be provided the same rights as back home in England. Well, we don't see the constant pushback towards the royal administration that we see, say, up in Massachusetts. Virginia colonists were not thrilled to have an English army occupying them. 
they were, at least nominally, happy to remain a part of the English Empire. However, beyond paying lip service, and taxes of course, back to England proper, they wanted minimal interference from the crown in their daily affairs. This feeling of wanting minimal interference from the crown exists in far more pronounced ways in Massachusetts and throughout New England. Colonists in New England viewed the rule under Edmund Andros as a violation of their very rights as Englishmen. The right to an assembly was something that was ingrained in their very ethos from the Magna Carta. We have begun to see these questions this season, but next season we are really going to be seeing the question of where the New England colonies belong in the greater empire. The colonists believed that they were, for all intents and purposes, living in England proper. They were not a conquered people. They had made this journey voluntarily. They were not at all amused at the fact that their basic rights as Englishmen were being violated. Well, the anger would be focused primarily on Andros. Recall that increased Mather had recognized that the anger was misplaced and that really the correct focus for that anger and all that energy should be right back at London. Nobody liked Andros. However, they likewise recognized that he was just doing the bidding of the English government. With questions such as their place in the empire bouncing around, we can therefore shift our focus towards the question of whether or not that period between 1675 and the collapse of the Dominion of New England in 1689 marked any kind of a proto-independence movement. In the case of Bacon's Rebellion, it is at least a little tempting to try and connect the events in Virginia to the Declaration of Independence almost exactly 100 years later. However, beyond being a fun little bit of trivia, nothing more should be read into that. The dates are purely a coincidence and nothing more. Now, we do know that, again, in the case of Virginia, Baconians did at least daydream with the question of Chesapeake independence. Following the collapse of Jamestown, the question in Virginia had shifted to just how far things were going to actually go here. The oath that Bacon was requiring had his followers pledging support, not to the king, but rather to Bacon and Virginia itself. Critically, the oath swore to protect the country against everybody, and that included the king himself. It was lost on absolutely nobody just how far of a major statement this was. William Berkeley himself would be very clear that this oath was just treason. Discussions had progressed far enough that the Baconian forces were looking beyond Virginia to see who else might be willing to join them. Maryland was the obvious pick, being located right next door. However, they had also at least put out feelers to Massachusetts, where autonomy had long reigned supreme. Bacon had at least seemed aware of some of the things that would become critical during the American Revolution 100 years later. He had at least made mention of buying arms and seeking alliances from the French, and especially the Dutch. Likewise, Bacon recognized that fighting in the woods was an advantage that the colonists were going to need to press. There is a home field advantage in that the invading army, here the English, would not know where to land nearly as well as the American colonists. These advantages aside, however, evidence points to the fact that Bacon was likely more interested in a degree of local autonomy more than he actually was outright independence. Local assemblies and freedom from the most onerous parts of the Navigation Acts would have gone a long way towards appeasing the Virginian rebels. Plus, more practically, winning a revolution against the English in 1676 versus, say, 1776 are very different things. 
For one, the population of Virginia in 1676 was somewhere around 40,000 people. By the time that 1776 rolled around, that number was closer to 340,000. Of course, some of that increase is going to be because of growing slave populations. However, the numbers don't lie. Throughout all of the colonies, there is going to be massive population growth over the next century. Virginia was also far more dependent economically on England in 1676 than they will be 100 years later. This is not to say that the break from England during the American Revolution did not bring with it economic hardships, as it most certainly did. However, in 1676, the economy was much more closely tied to England. A break with them would prove economically devastating. During the Revolution, there is also the question of how to get all of the colonies to agree to join the greater cause. In fact, it really isn't until late June of 1776 that it became clear that the entire thing is going to actually hold together. Several colonies, especially the middle ones, remained hesitant to join the greater cause. In 1676, it is even less clear if other colonies would be willing to join Virginia. Maryland, being right next door and flirting with their own rebellion, was a logical partner who probably would have been willing to join in on a greater independence effort. However, evidence is scarce to suggest that any of the middle colonies would have dared join the effort during Bacon's rebellion. Likewise, New England, though likely sympathetic, may have also proven hard-pressed to join in on an independence movement. As we have well established by this point, Massachusetts was no friend to the English crown. They had been rebellious and prized their autonomy more than likely any other group in the English North American colonies. To date, though, they had really never pushed any claims of independence. Why? Because they did not really have to. They kept doing their own thing, and while England would occasionally chirp at them to stop, it's not like England had done anything at all to really rein them in. Royal commissioners would come and go. They would write scathing reports about Puritan insolence in New England. The colonists would promise to do better, send some flattering words along, and everybody would just grumble under their breath about everybody else. And remember, this is 1667 we are talking about. It's not like the Massachusetts colonists know that a real crackdown is just a decade away. For them, all they knew is that besides some hand-wringing, England had never appeared to do much of anything to regain control over them or the other New England colonies. They may well have been sympathetic to Bacon's cause. In fact, it makes sense that they were. However, pragmatically, they knew that supporting the Baconian rebels in a greater quest for independence was a way to guarantee that the crown was going to crack down on their autonomy instead of just continuing to look the other way. This is not to mention that in Massachusetts, and for that sake throughout the rest of New England, by 1676, they were all busy getting trounced in King Philip's War. The last thing that they would have wanted at that moment is to face off in a pitched battle against a trained English army. For the Baconian rebels, the question of independence is going to be short-lived. It will be killed off just weeks after those thoughts began percolating. With the death of Nathaniel Bacon came the death of any real hope of leading a revolution. To the north in New England, the idea probably would have sounded better following the formation of the Dominion of New England. However, by that time, support was non-existent. Recall that the moderates in the colony, though, well, a minority, were still sizable. They were more than happy to see an end of Puritan rule and were unlikely to want to help those same Puritans overthrow Andros, at least initially. 
the Puritans, while still holding a majority of the population, simply were not going to have the numbers to effectively rebel against the English. Hence, the idea never really even begins. By the time that the Boston Rebellion in 1689 rolls around, everybody was now on the same team that Andros and the Dominion itself needed to go. However, by that point, the colonists were acting more opportunistically than anything else. They were able to justify the overthrow of Andros by linking their actions as being a patriotic show of support for William III, the new King of England. The rebellious colonists were able to say that, hey, you overthrew James II. Edmund Andros is an agent of James II. So in support of you, our king, we went ahead and did you a solid and we got rid of Andros for you. The evidence seems to point to the fact that without the glorious revolution in England, the overthrow of Andros would have never occurred. At least not in the manner that it did. It would put William III in a tight spot, as well as Parliament, as not accepting such rationale from the colonists would have been rather hypocritical considering their own recent actions. In this sense, however, even in the overthrow of the Dominion government, there never would have been any kind of momentum for a greater independence movement in New England. Certainly, it does not seem as though the moderates would have supported such a broad move. Plus, it would have undermined the entire justification for the initial action of getting rid of Andros. Therefore, while the idea of independence from England does briefly pop up in Virginia during the 15 years between 1675 and 1690, it never really gains the widespread support necessary for it to become anything more than a thought experiment. Even where it did have an amount of support and interest in Virginia, the death of Bacon just a few weeks after the idea began to gain traction acted as a bucket of cold water on the entire project. Well, it is fun to think about and run through the alternate histories. The colonies simply were not mature enough for a wider independence movement during the 17th century. When writing the season, nothing really stuck out more to me than the great irony that, despite what appears to be a string of victories, the colonists will lose a lot during this period. If we are focusing in on that period from 1675, the beginning of King Philip's War, to 1690, which is in the immediate aftermath of the fall of the Dominion of New England, we see the colonies go through a 15-year period where, on paper, they won most of their major wars. Despite not getting the decisive victory that they might have expected, the New Englanders were successful in winning King Philip's War. In Bacon's Rebellion, the rebels were able to overthrow Berkeley and cause a realignment of the large landholders. When the Dominion of New England appeared on the scene, the colonists were able to overcome their differences to overthrow it and dispose of the much-hated Edmund Andros. If we choose to take a narrow look, therefore, at this 15-year period, we can call it highly successful in terms of meeting the basic objectives. Yet, if we look right past the surface, though, this decade and a half had been nothing short of an unmitigated disaster throughout the American colonies. We are going to see a lot more of this moving forward into next season as we start to look at the aftermath of the period. However, we have already seen the effects in Massachusetts. That period in hegemony that they had so valued was gone. It's not coming back. The moderates had broken it and they were not going to let it return. Down in Virginia, there is a realignment of the large landholders and they are going to become far more closely aligned to the tenant farmer. However, England is going to have to double down on their efforts to ensure complete control over the colony, 
The tobacco trade carried with it great value for England, and they had no plans to allow another rebellion. Berkeley, for all the bad, was acting with far more autonomy than Virginia is going to see for nearly a century. Now, of course, in the case of Berkeley, autonomy meant corruption and overtaxation. However, the point does remain. We are going to see how New England adjusts to post-Dominion life at the start of next season, as the ramifications of the events for 1689 are fully fleshed out. By the end of this period of upheaval, we are left with a very different group of North American English colonies. From north to south, the colonies have seen challenges from both the Native Americans domestically and, more broadly, from the mother country. The question of the colony's place in the greater English empire has come to the forefront, and it is going to be a question that we are going to keep coming back to time and time again. Next season, we are going to come back and begin looking at a new phase in the future United States. We are going to look at how the colonies mature. Following the instability of the past few decades, we are going to see a period of relative stability and calm come over the colonies for much of the first half of the 18th century. We will then have a chance to look at the colonies as they mature, grow, and continue to question those very rights. When we wrap up next season, we are going to be sitting on the eve of the events that will lead us into the American Revolution. Now, I have managed to stay at a pretty good pace on the podcast, so I'm not going to need to take any extended break or anything like that. So we will indeed be back here in two weeks' time and jump into our third season. And as I said just a moment ago, we're going to pick up pretty much where we left off, looking at the aftermath of the fall of the Dominion of New England. To wrap today up, I want to take just a second to thank you all so much for listening. It is an absolute joy of mine that I get to come here and chat about history and talk about something that I truly, truly love. So thank you for coming back and listening to me do that. With that, as always, I hope you are staying healthy and staying safe. And we will be back here in two weeks' time to begin our third season and that march towards the final series of events that will cause the entire structure to come crashing down. <laughs>